0: We have a couple of passages to read together here as we continue our Harmony of the Gospels. I want to read John 18, verse one first first of all. I'm going to actually perhaps walk backwards up through these. Oh no, it's John 18, verse 1 is the first reading. And then that kind of sets the stage. And then we'll move over to Luke 22, Mark 14, and then Matthew 26. Luke 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went forth with His disciples over the ravine of the Cadron, where there was a garden in which He entered with His disciples. Turn over to Luke 22, verse 39. And He came out and proceeded as was His custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed Him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Go to Mark. Mark chapter 14 we'll start in verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, "Sit here until I have prayed." And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, "My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch." And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that it were possible the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as You will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then He came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays Me is at hand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the treasure that Your Word is. This morning, just the fact that we can meet openly and publicly is a a gift of your providence. Were we living at a different time or in a different region? Even to this very day, this sort of assembly would be outlawed in some countries. The fact that we have Bibles, and not only particularly a Bible, but many of us have multiple Bibles in our possession. What a gift. What a treasure. And to think that we can read about your Son... Thank you for having opened our eyes to see his beauty. I pray this morning you would give us an even better vision of Jesus. They would see him in his full deity and his full humanity. And that we would learn from his example and that we would find hope in his victory. We pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. In John 17, which we just finished last week, Jesus completed the longest recorded prayer that he made during his earthly ministry. I believe that chapters 14 through 17 of John's Gospel are actually travel narrative. I believe it's what Jesus was saying to his disciples after they left the upper room and celebrated Jesus' last Passover, which we know as the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper, leaving that upper room and traveling towards the destination that He now comes to today. I think those several chapters were just discussion between Him and His disciples. But now He comes to the destination. They come across the brook Kidron to where there was a garden. Matthew and Mark identify that garden as the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, a word meaning oil press. Oil press. Seems a fitting description for what Jesus was about to undergo it was a huge amount of pressing. Luke tells us that it was found at the base of the Mount of Olives. This was a place where Luke tells us Jesus had frequented. It was his custom to come to this place. It also helps explain the intrusion that we'll see next time together when Judas arrives with all the soldiers. How does he know where Jesus is? Well, he knew Jesus' custom. Perhaps Judas had first gone to the upper room, found Jesus was not there, and now travels out to this location where Jesus had frequented with his disciples. On this night, Jesus comes into the garden and tells the majority of his followers to stay at a certain place while he asks Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, to continue with him a little bit further in. Then Jesus separates himself even from those three in order to spend some time in prayer. Whereas John 17 concerned Jesus praying about His coming glory and about the protection and safety for His disciples, for their well-being, here in the Garden of Gethsemane we get a glimpse, we get a glimpse of a little bit different sort. Jesus is at present not considering the coming glory so much as that He will receive upon rising from the dead, but is considering the reality of God the Father's wrath which He will experience upon the cross. We don't have many words from Jesus in these series of prayers, no doubt largely due to the fact that the disciples couldn't even stay awake while He was praying. But we get glimpses that indicate to us that Jesus knew what was ahead of Him, and that knowledge was weighing heavy on His heart. Here was the God-man. Absolutely, Jesus was fully God and is fully God. And here, but here we have a scene in which we're struck all the more by Jesus' full humanity. As God, Jesus would surely emerge victorious. But as man, Jesus would surely suffer. Suffer for the sins of all those who would believe in Him. Suffer for all those given to Him by the Father. Suffer, by, suffer for all those whom He came to save. He would lay down His life in their place. He would bear the wrath of God in their stead. And in this hour of need, we see Jesus pouring out His heart before God the Father while His disciples struggle to even stay awake. Jesus warns His disciples to watch and pray that they not fall into temptation or trial or testing. He warns that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here was Jesus about to face the most climactic moment not only of His own life but of all of history. Here is Jesus about to face the most climactic moment of all of history and there are His disciples with Him nodding off. This makes me wonder how we approach hours of testing in our own lives. In a sermon entitled Strength for Hard Times, I'd like to draw out at least four sources of strength when we are under the gun or when we are facing a giant or when we encounter the storms of life or when we come to the end of ourselves. How do we persevere when everything seems to be coming to a head? When we feel like we're about to drown? How do you keep going when you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders? I think Jesus has some things to teach us about this. And I want you to not miss two elements to this. One is, Jesus' example is something for us to follow. But secondly, Jesus accomplishes something that none of us can. And so while there's instruction here for how we ought to encounter suffering, there's also an indicative here about what Jesus did in destroying suffering. Let's not miss both of those as we talk together. First of all, Our first source of strength is to admit the reality of suffering or to not flee from suffering. We have to maintain a biblical understanding of suffering if we have any hope of responding to hardship and difficulties and trials in a way that honors the Lord. We've spoken of this on many occasions before this, so I don't feel it necessary to conduct a complete systematic theology of the theme of suffering through the Bible Suffice it to say that suffering is the common lot of everyone because we live in a fallen world and it is even greater for Christians because we've been called out of this world and as a result this world hates us. First John three thirteen do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. First Peter four twelve and thirteen. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes about for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that we share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. Philippians twenty nine, For you has been granted not only to believe in His name, but also to suffer for His sake. The Bible has so many verses speaking to the reality of suffering And if you thought in becoming a Christian that that would free you from suffering, you have a wrong picture of reality and you do not have a biblical understanding of it either. The Bible is very clear that suffering is the common lot of all humans living in a fallen world and it is the special lot of those who follow Jesus. Imagine this, we receive the same treatment as the one whom we follow. So what must we do? We must face the struggle. And let's face it. Sometimes we attempt to deal with hardship by running away or pretending that it doesn't exist. Sometimes we try to just sleep it away. We're told the second time that Jesus comes back to his disciples while he's praying, he finds them again sleeping. But we're given this further description when the gospel accounts where it says, Their eyes were weighed down, and then we have this further thing, from sorrow. Their eyes were weighed down from sorrow. Now at times you might experience insomnia as it relates to anxiety, right? I mean, you're so worried and stressed about things that it's, it's hard to go to sleep. Perhaps some of us have experienced that. Maybe even this week you've experienced some of that. Difficulty sleeping because of the pressures and worries and difficulties accompanying this world. But there are other times in which we are so emotionally drained and exhausted that we are worn out by grief. And the first thing we want to do is put our heads down on the pillow and just sleep. To have a a respite from the pain. A a moment in which we're not thinking about what we're going through. And for that reason, I think that sleep is a wonderful gift from God. When we're awake, we sometimes are, when we awake from sleep, sometimes we're imbued with new strength and new perspective and new vigor. I'm sure you've had that experience, right? You go to bed one night, you wake up the next morning like, man, I have a completely different perspective on the situation now. Like, I just needed some rest. And now I'm not, emotionally overloaded. I can kind of sit down and think about this a little bit more biblically and logically and approach it with a new day's vigor. Sometimes we're granted new perspective, new patience, new wisdom as a result of a little bit of rest. We are very weak and frail and are in need of rest. But there are other times in which we use sleep as an escape, as some kind of effort to avoid reality. Some people try to sleep hardship away. Some people becoming stressed or with life become depressed and want to just sleep. Sleep days away if they could. Why? Because they don't want to face the reality of the hardship in front of them. Some others retreat to other avoidance policies like drugs or drunkenness. Others binge on food or shopping or entertainment. Now, non-Christians retreat to these things, these empty cisterns that can't actually hold any water, for some sort of relief. They're looking for relief from the trials and struggles of life. And they don't know how to deal with it, so they retreat to these false gods, these things that can't actually fulfill them or sustain them. They're, They're left more thirsty, right? The drunkard doesn't actually feel better when it's all said and done. He maybe has a moment in which he doesn't think of his trials, But the next morning, he thinks of his trials and he throws up, right? It doesn't go away. The trials are still there. Same thing with the shopaholic. Now all they have is a big credit card bill, right? More stress, more worries, more difficulties. Non-Christians retreat to these things trying to find some sort of solace, some sort of hope. But Christians have been given living water in Jesus So we're called to come to Him. And instead of fleeing away from hardship and trying to ignore it and trying to avoid it and trying to pretend that it's not there and trying to sleep through it, rather, we are to be honest about it and face it with the strength that God provides. And a big step towards honesty is to admit your sorrows. Admitting your sorrows. As Jesus enters into the garden, He There's one of His disciples that's missing, right? Judas. Because he's orchestrating his plot to bring soldiers and have Jesus arrested for 30 pieces of silver. He takes eight of the rest of them and puts them at the entrance of the garden. And He takes three with Him further, His closest disciples. And He tells these three men, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. He says, I am so sorrowful inwardly that I'm on the brink of dying. Now, while Jesus' suffering certainly involved physical aspects, as has been depicted in descriptions of crucifixion and movies of crucifixion, you know, it is certainly true that the Romans had perfected crucif- you know. Perfected execution in crucifixion. A way to prolong someone's death for quite a while. For them to experience excruciating pain and agony. It was a horrible, horrible way to die. And that, Without making any light of the difficulties and pains associated with the way in which Jesus died, you must not make light of the internal suffering that Jesus underwent. Isaiah 53 tells us this. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, putting him to sorrow. If you would render him as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. There is definitely pain and suffering going on on the cross But it is fascinating to me that sometimes we do not think about the anguish of Jesus' soul in the Garden of Gethsemane as a prelude to the cross. Jesus says, my soul is so sorrowed that I am about to die. He's feeling a tremendous weight. Ambrose said it was necessary that he should experience grief that he might overcome sorrow. Jesus' sorrow was such that his physical body could not help but show it. We're told that his sweat became like clotted blood falling to the ground. There's some debate about this. Some people have put forward the idea that what he's saying here is that his actually capillaries underneath his skin ruptured. The blood seeped to the surface combined with sweat coming out of his pores. And he literally sweat blood. Another way of reading this is as a, an analogy, as a comparison here. He sweat metaphorically like blood. The sweat was falling from his face so with such um I don't know what was it, with such greatness that it was akin to sweating drops of blood. Either way, the point is he is under tremendous, tremendous pressure. We have to Admit our sorrows and we must distrust our strength. If you're going to handle this biblically, you must distrust yourself. Jesus tells his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is interesting because these very disciples, as we'll talk about it in a minute, were the very ones who were boasting about how, what they would do for Jesus should something happen. Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh here describes our human nature, how we're frail and weak. And even someone who's been a recipient of God's special grace, who is eager to do what is right, we have to maintain vigilance for our flesh is weak and we are open to attack. We are vulnerable. So Jesus calls his disciples, as you would call us to, to alertness and to prayerfulness. Ryle said it this way, let us live like men on enemy's ground and be always on our guard. We cannot walk too carefully. We cannot be too jealous over our souls. The world is very ensnaring and the devil is very busy. When Jesus enters into prayer here, He falls onto His knees, we're told, and then puts His face to the ground. And He sweats and perhaps bleeds there. What a posture. A posture outwardly picturing that He was carrying inwardly A tremendous weight. A tremendous pressing. A weight which we will never be able to fathom. And, by His posture, He also says with His body what His heart is crying out. Not My will, but Your will. Be done, Father. So we first have to be honest about the hardships we're encountering. Instead of fleeing from them, We then, number two, need to prioritize time alone with God. Be real about the hardships. Don't flee from them, but instead flee to God. Prioritize time with God. We must engage in the practice of solitude, spending time with the Lord. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives according to His custom. We know in several other passages in the New Testament, it's referred to that Jesus often withdrew from His disciples' for prayer with his Father. And while this was Jesus' practice, we see it significantly being notated by the Gospels whenever there was some significant thing on the horizon. Certainly this was always Jesus' lifestyle, but noted particularly is before huge things happening in Jesus' ministry. For example, before Jesus selects the disciples, he's in prayer. Following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus retreats to a mountain by Himself and prays. Remember, this is when the disciples get on boats and try to go across. And then Jesus meets them in the night, walking on the water. And here before the cross, Jesus praying. You see, prayer to a Christian is like breathing. We're to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. But if that is the case, then certainly we're to pray in a time of trouble. If we're always to pray, then when we're in difficulty, what ought we do? Pray. And we have specific injunctions for that in the, in the Bible. Don't flee from God saying, oh, well, it's just because I'm in trouble. God wants to hear your troubles. Come to Him. Perhaps He's brought those troubles into your life to wake you up to the reality that you need Him all the time. To so come to Him. Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. How often did Israel do this with God? Forgetting God and the prosperity, as soon as trouble comes, running right back to Him. And how many times does God forgive them? How many times does God draw them in? James 5.13 If any among you is suffering, let him pray. Let him pray. Ryle again says, the first friend we we should turn to is God. The first message we should send ought to be to the throne of grace. We must tell our Father in heaven all our sorrow. How well does it work for you when you bottle up your sorrows? How well does that go for you? Cry out to a loving Heavenly Father. Jesus' ministry was empowered by this time alone with His Father. The practice of prayer in Jesus' life reveals this deep, settled acknowledgement of relationship with His Father, a desire to rest upon His Father's provision. And so it is with us. A deep, prayerful life reveals the reality of an acknowledgement that I am weak and frail, that my strength is next to nothing, and He is the one I need. The only way that we can be faithful in this faithless faithless world is through continual communion with God. This is certainly cultivated throughout all of life. But I will tell you this. One whose relationship with the Lord is on fire, it really shines when there's times of trouble. Someone's relationship with God, when when that is strong and healthy, when times of trouble come, The reality of that relationship shines all the more. And I'll tell you, people are watching when you undergo suffering. Everyone expects if you get a raise at work for you to be happy about that. But should you get fired, people are watching. How will you respond to that? Or how about, how do you deal with things like cancer? I'm not sure how many of you are aware of this unfolding story. A hit CNN, a cancer patient by the name of Brittany Maynard of 29 has scheduled her death for November 1st. On that day, she plans to take a pill that was given to her by doctors as she wants to choose her own death and avoid hospice and the suffering that her brain tumor cancer will entail. Before she dies by assisted suicide, Brittany states that she wants to use the rest of her time on earth to lobby for every American to have access to assisted suicide services. It's another cancer patient by the name of Kara Tippett. She's 36 years old. She has four children. She was diagnosed two years ago with breast cancer, it is now metastasized into her t- entire body. Upon hearing of what Maynard is planning to do, she wrote an email, which I'd like to read a few excerpts from. And you can read more about her walk with Jesus and how she's walking through a time of hardship and difficulty in her book that's just come out called The Hardest Peace, Expecting Grace in the Midst of Life's Hard. This is her letter, or at least excerpts from it. My wife read this to me the other night, and as I reread it, it is tough to read. You see the the joy that she has deep down inside. Dear Brittany... This morning, my best friend and I read your story. My heart ached for you and I'm simply grieved by your terminal brain tumor for the less than six months that the doctors gave you. With a heavy heart, I left my home and headed for my oncologist. I too am dying, Brittany. My oncologist and I sat for a long time with hurting hearts for your story. We spoke in gentle tones discussing the hard path you've been asked to travel. I came home And my friend and I sat on the bed of my five-year-old and prayed for you. We simply prayed you would hear my words from the most tender and beautifully broken place of my heart. We prayed you would hear my words that are on paper coming from a place of tender love and knowing knowing what it is to know the horizon of your days that once felt limitless now feels to be dimming. So hear these words from a heart full of love for you. Brittany, your life matters. Your story matters. And your suffering matters. Thank you for stepping out from the privacy of your story and sharing it openly. We see you, we see your life, and there are countless lovers of your heart that are praying you would change your mind. Brittany, I love you, and I'm sorry you are dying. I'm sorry that we are both being asked to walk a road that feels simply impossible to walk. Dear heart, we simply disagree. Suffering is not the absence of goodness. It is not the absence of beauty, but perhaps it can be the place where true beauty can be known. In your choosing your own death, you are robbing those who love you with such tenderness, the opportunity of meeting you in your last moments and extending you love in your last breaths. As I sat on the bed of my young daughter praying for you, I wondered over the impossibility of understanding that one day the story of my young daughter will be made beautiful in her living because she witnessed my dying. That last kiss, that last warm touch, that last breath matters. But it was never intended for us to decide when that last breath is breathed. Knowing Jesus, knowing that He understands my hard goodbye, He walks with me in my dying. My heart longs for you to know Him in your dying. Because in His dying, He protected my living, my living beyond this place. Brittany, when we trust Jesus to be the carrier, protector, redeemer of our hearts, death is no longer dying. My heart longs for you to know this truth, this love, this forever living. You've been told a lie, a horrible lie, that your dying will not be beautiful, that the suffering will be too great. There are also people who are speaking in ugly tones that make those of us who believe in Jesus seem unsafe, unkind, or unloving. Will you forgive us for the voices that feel like they are screaming at you from a heart that isn't loving? But in my whispering, pleading, loving voice, dear heart, will you hear my heart? I ask you, I beg you, I plead with you not to take that pill. Yes, your dying will be hard, but it will not be without beauty. More importantly, will you hear from my heart that Jesus loves you? He loves you. He loves you. He died and overcame death three days later. And in that overcoming of death, he overcame the death you and I are facing in our cancer. He longs to know you, to shepherd you in your dying and to give you life and give you life abundant. For everyone living, knowing death is imminent, that we will all one day face this. The question that is most important is, who is this Jesus and what does he have to do with my dying? Please do not take the pill before you ask that question. It's a question we all must ask as we are all dying. She offers then her book to her, and then she says, but more than my book, I would jump on a plane tomorrow to meet you and share the beautiful brokenness of my story and meet you in yours if you would ever consider having me. I pray my words reach you. I pray they reach the multitudes that are looking at your story and believing the lie that suffering is a mistake, that dying isn't to be brave, that choosing your own death is the courageous story. No, hastening death was never what God intended, but in our dying, He does meet us with His beautiful grace. See the difference? See the hope that is in the midst of all of this? What a contrastive picture. What a brilliant illustration of the difference that Jesus makes for our hardships. He transforms even the ugliest things into something beautiful. Thirdly, third source of strength, consider your friends. Consider your friends. And certainly we've all encountered at times the pain of desertion. Well, one disciple is out plotting Jesus' death. Jesus brings three with him a little bit further into the garden, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. These were selected a couple of previous times as people who received glory glimpses of Jesus. They get to see a glimpse of Jesus' glory. These are the three men that were invited into Jairus' daughter's house, into, the, into that room, and they watched Jesus as he raised the little girl to life. Those three men saw that. They're also the same three that were given a glimpse of Jesus' glory up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now he takes those same three men who had seen these glorious glimpses of Jesus' power to now share with Jesus in his suffering, in his sorrow. He would give them a glimpse into this coming conflict. He would bear out his soul before God the Father and he would allow these three men access to see that. He tells his men to watch and pray. But three times, Jesus returns, finding these closest of companions on earth sleeping in his hour of need. Jesus addresses Peter specifically, but the rebuke that he offers is offered to them all. Remember, Peter's the one who said these things, Mark 14. Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will certainly not deny you. He said he was ready to go to prison and death with Jesus in Luke 22. He said that he would lay down his life for Jesus in John 13. Interestingly, interestingly James and John, on a previous occasion, even, boasted, even earlier than Peter, had boasted in Matthew 20. Jesus said to him, do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And James and John say, we are able. So here, Peter, James, and John, the three guys were boasting, We'll die with you, Jesus. We can take the cup that you're about to drink, Jesus. We're there for you, Jesus. Jesus says, Come with me, three. Watch and pray, you three. And three times I return and you're sleeping. It had been long foretold that Jesus would be deserted. The disciples' failure to stay awake and watch it is just a prelude to coming events. These men who are struggling to even stay awake are about to desert Jesus, just as Jesus predicted. Even Peter will desert Jesus in the form of three denials before the rooster crows that very morning. And were it not that Jesus had prayed for Peter, or were it not that God's hand was upon Peter, all would be lost for Peter. But God's grace would turn Peter around, grant him repentance and renewed vigor in pursuit of Christ. And Jesus says, after you have been brought back and restored, you will encourage Your brothers. And this very sequence of events happens. The disciples' failure to keep alert was also a picture of their failure to reckon rightly with the time. Did they have any clues about what was about to happen that very night? Jesus had spoken to it often. But at this most critical moment in Jesus' ministry, we see His closest followers being so insensitive to what was happening and so unready for the moment that He can't even push off sleep. <laughs> These guys said, I'll die for you. Can't even stay awake to pray for Him. But then I wonder, how often are we in the same boat? How often have we made big boasts? Oh Jesus, i die for you! And meanwhile, as we come to the end of a day, can't even spend a few moments in prayer before we fall asleep. You see, Jesus here was left to bear the fight alone. But this is how it must be. Only He and He alone could save us. But there is a beauty that comes with companionship. And I think the beautiful part of this story is not so much the disciples' failure to attend to Jesus, but Jesus' friendship of these men, even in their failure. See, it's not so much their companionship of Jesus as it is Jesus' companionship of them. Three times he meets these men, the closest of his earthly associates, right? And they're sleeping in his hour of need. But does he reject them? Does he cast them away? Instead, even his words to them you know, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says, watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. He's concerned about their spiritual well-being. Also we get a different picture here. Jesus perhaps has brought these three closer with him into the garden because he knew these three would encounter extreme attacks from the enemy. And he wants to leave them with this lesson. And with this lesson that they would encourage the other disciples with it as well. Remember, Peter was the one in particular whom Satan desired to sift as wheat. And Jesus said... After you've fallen, you'll be restored and encourage your brothers. Jesus had warned them in the end of the Olivet Discourse to maintain watchfulness. Watch lest you be caught sleeping. And now back at the the foot of the same mountain, the Mount of Olives, here Jesus is with his disciples and very literally catches them sleeping. While these men might fail to come through for Jesus, Jesus will never fail them. You will never, no never, no never forsake them. Jesus would do this battle alone. No one else was up to the task. But what a joy it is to know that we are never alone. Jesus was alone. That we would never have to be alone. Because you see, even when everyone else deserts us or doesn't like us, what a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus. And by God's grace, He has left us many times with many wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ. He's adopted us and brought us into His family. And we have the opportunity to love one another and to exhort one another and to comfort one another and to teach one another, correct one another, to work with one another, to bear one another's burdens. But here was a burden that no one else could bear. But Jesus bore a burden no one else could bear, so he could bear our burdens. This brings us to the last source of strength and hardship. And it's the thing that really stands out in this text, and is that idea of submitting to God's will. Men's group is talking about the moral and sovereign wills of God, and so, just to bring up that theme for a moment, how do we encounter hardships What does it look like to submit to God's will in hardship? First thing I would say is that we find joy in obeying God's moral will. What does it mean to submit to God, to His will, in hardship? Well, it means we find joy in obeying Him, whether things are prosperous or difficult. We find consistent joy in obeying Him. And by his, by moral will, we mean what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. So obeying what he has called us to do. This world hates those who love God and will do its worst to squash them if they can. But they cannot change this about a Christian, and that is the joy a Christian feels in following his Lord. You can do whatever you want to me. You can take away my job. You can spit on me. You can do all these various things you want to do, even kill me but you cannot remove my joy in obeying the Lord. Our men's group recently discussed Joseph in this regard, right? A whole lot of circumstances come into Joseph's life that he didn't ask for. But meanwhile, what do you find him doing, no matter what his circumstance? Joyfully obeying the Lord. Whether in prison, whether in a pit, or whether as the second in command in Egypt. And at the end of the day, while he wouldn't have asked for any of those circumstances, and while many meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So one of the ways we submit to God's will is we obey God's moral will, His revealed will, in the midst of the difficulty. We might not be able to understand or explain all that's happening. We might pour our heart out before God, asking for the removal of the difficulty or the trial. I also encourage that we pray for God to give us strength to persevere through the trial, if that be what his will is. His sovereign will is a different story, but we can obey his moral will in the midst of all things. And we can find security in remembering God's power. This is not a question about whether or not God is able. In fact, in Mark's account, Jesus says the words, all is possible for you. He's not doubting what his Father is able to do. Jesus' hardship could be averted, but without it, there would be no redemption for sinful man. This is the means by which God's justice would be upheld as He punished His sin in the stead of sinners. I mean, he punished Him as, uh, as sin in the stead of sinners. So Jesus was sinless. And, and at the same time, He extends mercy and grace to those who call out to Him. Jesus could rest and trust in God's power. Jesus also, I think, found peace in pleading for God's action. Found peace and pleading for God's action. We can too. This is why we bring everything to the Lord in prayer. Jesus makes his request. I know all things are possible for you. Let this cup pass from me. He makes this request no less than three times. We're told that he repeated those words in the second and third prayers. But what is this hour? What is this cup? I think we've already started to highlight it a little bit. Certainly this is a reference to coming events. But we cannot reduce, again, Jesus' concern to just merely physical death. Jesus had already said in John 12, which we had read, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. He says, now, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus said in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. How many of us can say, I have authority over my life as to whether I die or not? No one besides Jesus Jesus says, No one can take my life from me. I give it willingly. What does he mean by cup? The word cup in the Old Testament, used in several different passages, you can almost sum it up by saying it refers to the wrath of God's holiness, his judgment falling upon, often upon nations and individuals that are described. Psalm 11, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25. Several different passages that speak of the cup of the Lord's wrath. Ellicott explains this. It was the contemplation. What is Jesus saying when he says, This cup passed from me? It was the contemplation of contact with everything most alien to the divine nature, sin, darkness, and death, that called out for the Savior's words, that heightened the agony of Gethsemane, and found its deepest utterance in the cry of unimaginable suffering. You see, in just a few short hours, Jesus will cry from the cross. Not only have his disciples deserted him, but, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew that his death would carry with it the full horror of God-forsakenness. It was death in which Jesus would be forsaken of God and made to be sin for us. Though was such a heavy weight upon Jesus his agony was our sin and the dreadful implications of our sin. In the words of Second Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus was to be sin for us. Jesus was to be made a curse for us. He was the sacrificial lamb for us who was willing to die for our sins. He was also the scapegoat for us, willing to take our sin far away from us, to remove it away from us. It's a horrifying thought to think of one sinner dying and going before a holy God. It is a fearful thing for a sinner to go before a holy God. But can you imagine what it would be like to suffer for every sin of every believer throughout all of history? That's what Jesus was under. And sin that were not, was not His. And experiencing a forsakenness from God the Father with whom He had eternal, perfect relationship. Who can imagine what it would be like to suffer for every sin of every believer throughout history? This prayer in the final hour almost makes us think of that moment where Abraham, in obedience to God's command, brings his son Isaac, the son, his only son Isaac, the one whom he loves, and he puts him on the altar. Remember? And Abraham raises up the knife to slay his son as a sacrifice as God had commanded him. And right before he brings down the knife, God says, wait, hold. There's a ram in the thicket. Go grab the ram. Set up the sacrifice for him. He'll serve as a substitute for Isaac. Here Jesus is on the brink of his own crucifixion. And while God had graciously provided a substitute for Abraham's son, no substitute could be placed in Jesus' position. Only Jesus alone could die as the propitiatory sacrifice for the sins of the world. In fact, all the animal sacrifice throughout all of the Old Testament proved the fact that they couldn't actually take away sin because you had to keep doing it over and over and over again. All it was was foreshadowing the need for a sacrifice, for they could never really ultimately take away sins. Hebrews 10 speaks to this. I'm going to just read a couple of excerpts from it, starting in verse 1. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they'd have ceased to be offered. He says, in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year to year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. says by this, verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We also had read this morning, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness towards the very beginning of his earthly ministry, public earthly ministry. And we see at the end of that, in Matthew's account, we're told that an angel comes and ministers to Jesus. We see the same description given here in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, verse 43. It tells us that an angel appeared to strengthen Jesus. Why do we bring everything to the Lord in prayer I love the promise that we're given in Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Note, bring your requests, and He will grant peace. Not, you'll get the answer that you're necessarily looking for. Bring your requests, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus, obviously here, though, ultimately trusts in God's sovereign will. And so must we. How do we encounter hardship? How do we deal with it? We ultimately find hope in trusting God's sovereign will. Because we know that God is not only in charge, but He is good. Right? He's not only all-powerful, but He is good. And after a three-round bout of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus emerges victorious yet again, submitted to His Father's will. For this was ultimately what Jesus willed. He willed to do the will of His Father. For that reason, ultimately for us, submission of will is one of the brightest graces that can adorn our character, Ryle says. It's one of, in which a child of God ought to aim at in everything if he desires to be like Christ. Not my will, but Thy will be done. And so Jesus emerges from the garden, and he's ready to face his accusers. He finds his disciples sleeping a third time. And his words here, the last time, are the, a little bit hard to translate even. People kind of stumble over them, because they're, they're, they're written as imperatives, like sleep and relax. So he comes back a third time, and he finds them, and he goes, them, go, sleep and relax. So people have questioned how to actually understand what Jesus is saying here. Is he asking it as an ironical question, like, are you still sleeping? Are you still relaxing? Is it an indignant observation? You're still sleeping. You're still relaxing. Or is he saying it with some biting irony? Go ahead and sleep on. Relax on. And then he says right after that, the time has come. Get up. Let's meet the betrayer whose time is here at hand. The first Adam would rebel against God and plunge all of mankind into sin and death while in a perfectly prepared garden, the Garden of Eden. Now the second Adam, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane would perfectly submit to His Father's will and save men by dying in their place. Decisions made in one garden would lead to disobedience and death, while decisions made in another would lead to the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus would remove the sting of death by His death. He would remove the curse by becoming a curse. He would grant us life by giving up His. He disarmed death. He took away its sting by taking the fury upon Himself. He accepted God's holy fury so that God's mercy and grace could be extended to sinners. And we know the rest of the story. Jesus is not left in the grave. God would rise up His Son from the dead and exalt Him to the highest place and give Him the name above every name that is the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, how do we persevere through hardship? We do so by looking to Jesus. Yes, He set an example for us to follow. We ought to take, not run away from hardship. We need to be honest and real with God and pray, with Him, pray to Him about everything. We can thank Him for the joy of companionship along the way and we can ultimately submit to His will, both His moral and sovereign will. Yes, Jesus set an example to follow, but even more than that, He secured ultimate victory for us that can never be taken away. In the words of the song we sang this morning, more than conquerors, When my hope and strength is gone, you're the one who calls me on. You are the life. You are the fight that's in my soul. Oh, your resurrection power burns like fire in my heart. When waters rise, I lift my eyes up to your throne. I will sing into the night. Christ is risen and on high. Greater is He living in me than in the world. No surrender, No retreat. We are free and we are redeemed. We will declare over despair. You are the hope. And as the chorus goes, we are more than conquerors through Christ. You have overcome this world, this life. We will not bow to sin or to shame. We are defiant in your name. You are the fire that cannot be tamed. You are the power in our veins. Our Lord, our God, our conqueror. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your marvelous grace and mercy. Thank You, Jesus, for the salvation which You have accomplished. We know that we have no hope apart from Your work on our behalf. Obviously, You set the perfect example in how to deal with hardship and difficulties, and we can learn from watching that and and follow in Your footsteps Lord, we needed more than merely an example. We needed a Savior, a hero, one who would rescue us. And Thank You for having done that work that none of us could. All of us weak and frail. While You, the perfect God-man, fully God and fully man, able to offer up Your life as a ransom for many. Lord, I pray that even in this room today, should there be someone who would be honest about where they are in relationship with You. Perhaps they are lost. I pray You give them eyes to see, hearts to believe. Grant them repentance this day. Cause them to call out to Jesus. For whether or not we know it precisely from some doctor's visit how long we have to live, all of us will die one day. It's appointed for man to die once, and after this is the Judgment. This might be for some people in this room their last warning of the coming judgment. You're gracious to give that warning. And You, by Your grace, also provide the means by which we believe and repent. And so we ask that You do that even in this place today. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters in this room, may we face hardship in a way that leads people to see the sufficiency of Jesus that shows people that we have hope even beyond the grave. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.